UX Podcast Episode 54. Listening to UX Podcast brought to you from Stockholm, Sweden. For people passionate about balancing business, technology, and users within the realm of digital media. Helping you break down silos, here are your hosts, James Royal Lawson and Per Axboom. Hello, and welcome to episode 54 of UX Podcast. You're listening to me, Per Axboom. And me, James Royal Lawson. And you'll notice I did not scream hello. No, you didn't. <laughs> we practiced before the show. Yeah, well, and I was thinking about it real hard now. You were. It is It is really difficult not to say hello loud, because I'm so excited every time we record or something. So, yeah, we're so, we're so happy to be here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Lovely day in Stockholm. It's a bit colder now, going into August, and uh, I haven't slept really well, actually, so I'm really tired this morning. I hope you'll do most of the talking, James. As long as you're not grumpy. <laughs> I'm never grumpy. Never grumpy. No. No. I may slur and not talk very coherently, but never, never, ever see, see, you're grumpy. As far as kind of like building up buy-in for this episode, mm. you're doing a fantastic job there, Pat. Really? Aren't I? <laughs> what are we talking about today, James? Oh, well, today's a link show. Yes, finally. We haven't done one We haven't in a done while. for a while. No, we've been, we've been quite wound up on certain topics. We've mm. had a few topic shows and a few interviews, yeah. um, including Brad Frost, Brad Frost, who's in Sweden at the moment. Oh, yeah. At this very moment. Not here with us. Right. Unfortunately. But he's in now he is, yeah. yeah. Um, well, no, so we've, we've, we've decided to throw together a link show. Um, so we've got three, um, three links, articles um, to talk about mm. today that we've found during our digital travels. Right. As I normally write. And we don't agree with any of them, apparently. It would appear <laughs> from our little, um, little chat this morning yeah. that we, um, we don't um, agree. We are really hard to please. <laughs> Today we seem to be. So you see grumpy old men who haven't slept. There we go. Um, <clears throat> so which one's first? Let, let's start off uh, with deception. This is how deceptive is your persuasive design? Yep, it's an article by Chris Nodder on UX Magazine. And you know how we design stuff and we have gotten into the habit of Realizing that we need to use all these psychological tactics and techniques for persuading people. And we've, in recent episodes, talked about mm. social proof and scarcity and all these different things. That, and behavioral, psych- behavioral psychology. Yeah, PKM theory. Mm. And um, sometimes we get into the, well, insight that perhaps we're not just persuading people, we're also deceiving them. And... This is more notably in the field of e-commerce, which neither you or I really work with a lot, James. Not a lot. But, but if you're in e-commerce and you're getting, trying to get people to buy stuff, then you you want to get people to buy as much stuff as possible. And so you use all these techniques. Hmm. And I think… It's a, there's a business drive there that, yeah. that the, the business themselves want hmm. to convert everybody into customers right. um, by and large. And yeah. I think the hotel business is really good at this. Yeah. Uh, Hotels.com, I mean, you can find so many examples right there. There are not many rooms left. Do you have a special price offer that runs out in 10 minutes? Mm. Stuff like that. So you really have to act now and buy mm. or you lose a lot of the chance of making a good deal with what they want you to feel. Mm. And Chris Nodder has some examples in his article as well. Uh, he starts mm. off the Amazon example where 
it's actually an old bookstore technique that's been used pre-internet, of course, is having as few books in stock as possible of new new releases mm. so that they're sold out really fast. Yeah. And so the example is that Amazon usually has something that says perhaps only nine left in stock, uh, which sort of gives oh, you only incentive. one left in stock. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. And it's, it's supposed to supposedly gives you an incentive to buy now because maybe you'll not be able to buy one if you come back tomorrow to buy it. Yeah, it's kind of principle of scarcity there that you think that something's scarce and that you need to get it now. Yeah, so yeah. before it vanishes. Um, I think he, he mentions this is the the, um, the Tom Tom Sawyer effect, right? I think which is from um, Mark Twain's book where mm. um, I think Tom Tom Sawyer yeah he, he, he gets um, as a punishment he has to paint um, Aunt Polly's mm. fence. So whitewash it, mm. and um, as a punishment, I think it's a punishment. Mm. And he thinks it's a really dull job. And he convinces, he manages to convince his friends into thinking that painting the fence is a fantastic. It's really good. Yeah. It's, it's a privilege. Ah, it's, it's something it's that he's, yeah. he's kind of honour and privilege to do it. Mm. And they're not allowed to. Mm. And that kind of makes them a bit kind of jealous and makes them well, you know, I really want to do that because why aren't I allowed to do mm. it? Um, so he ends up charging them mm. for the privilege of painting the fence, the, right. the fence, because. It is a privilege, mm-hmm. and they believe that. So he's deceived mm-hmm. them, and earned some money right. from it. And here's where it really then gets interesting: Is it wrong to deceive people in that way if they are happy? If they're happy doing mm-hmm. it, and because that's really interesting. What you're saying: If the yeah. people that he persuaded are still happy about paying to do to paint the fence, then perhaps the deception was okay, as long as because you, as long but, as it lasts. As, as long as it lasts, <laughs> they, don't, they don't find out about it later. But exactly. If once. Mm-hmm. The, they're happy and they mm. think that they've bought an experience. Mm-hmm. They have, and they're they're pleased with that. Right. The only the only time it comes to an end is when mm. they've they've found they found out the magic mm. behind the de- deception. They they've realised that mm. oh, it's a punishment. This this was actually not yeah. fun at all. Exactly. Um, Which is really strange to have an experience where you're thinking it's fun, and then to find out another detail later on and realise that oh, that wasn't fun, even though you had the experience of mm. fun. That, that's I haven't thought that about mm. that a lot actually, but. How how that can change your perception of something that happened earlier mm. that you really enjoyed. Mm. I mean, could mm. we say there then that well you're, you're trying to buy airline tickets mm. and you're searching and you're finding various prices mm. and um, you you think oh should I go shouldn't I and then you, you search again even though its price has gone up a little bit mm-hmm. and you think oh no I'll I'll do it I'll buy it now before mm. it goes up any further buy your tickets you think yes we're going on that weekend to to Paris now or whatever yeah. um, and and then the next day you read an article that explains that um, flight prices often go up when you search if you mm. don't delete your cookies because they know you're researching yeah. and artificially inflate the prices to mm-hmm. panic you into buying it. Right. Suddenly, you've got a bit of taste in your mouth yeah. and you think, oh, I've been cheated. Exactly. So you go from euphoria of, of the yep. moment of purchase and thinking you've done a good deal mm. to crashing down when you've, yep. you've had the, the magic trick revealed. That's an excellent example. And this is where I start having trouble with uh, Chris's article as well is when he starts saying that it's okay to deceive people if it's in their best interests. That's right. That's right. Now, how could you possibly know what's in... You, you, need, you need to have so much information about the needs and habits and desires of the person you're selling to that you have to be really, really certain that it is in their best interest that they buy this product from you or read whatever information or download or subscribe or whatever it is you're trying to persuade them to do. Mm. But how can you really be sure that that's in their best interest? That's really like a misnomer to me. You can't really do that. No. And then also that you're, now we're still talking about the the commerce, mm. the transactional side of, of yes. persuasion. Mm. You've you've got the mm. um, service side mm. of persuasion. I mean, how 
when you, when you're you're providing information mm-hmm. rather than um, or even healthcare stuff that side of thing right. where 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 does persuasion in that or deception mm-hmm. in that side of mm-hmm. the scale start to be relevant and mm-hmm. and good can you can you deceive people into making the right choice as opposed to the right purchase See what I mean? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and it, uh, I think it's Dan Ariely who has the example of uh, uh, people uh, signing up for d- uh, donor cards, or mm. donor, donating their organs after their death. Yeah, and that's really different in different countries. And in some countries, it's, the, it's default, isn't it? Yeah. yeah and the reason is, mm. yeah, what's default on the form? If the default mm. f- is that you actually donate, then it's going to be higher. So you're actually deceiving people to donate their organs, which you would perhaps think that's for a good cause but in the end are people aware of what they're actually doing mm. which is if, if people aren't aware i mean how stupid can people be apparently they are pretty stupid that, that, we, we well, all are i mean it's not say, i'm saying that i'm not it's not i'm not saying users are stupid <laughs> but you're stupid. i'm saying we're all but that's that, that's ready that's, to be deceived really i think you're that's mm. a good point mm. um I think you know, most of our designs are trying to persuade people to do something. Mm. Um, and it makes me rem- it makes me remember now. Um, Jesper Ostrom, mm-hmm. who we talked to in episode thirty nine, um, who a really clever guy, yeah. and we had a really good chat to him. Yes, um, he said the other day um, that he he actually feared for the free thinking of mankind um, because of how easy it is to manipulate people online. Right. You can just change mm. a font on a mm. website and conversion rate goes up. Or you right. can you can you know make a tweak here and mm. there, mm. and suddenly the people are starting. Or, or say there's only one book left, and yeah. people buy it. Mm. He was kind of worried about how little people think for themselves because of the the various persuasion techniques mm-hmm. we can can use and do use mm. to to succeed online. That is really interesting. I mean, that then we can go back and talk to uh, talk about what is school's responsibility in all this. How do we teach people? to interpret information online, to mm. be wary of what they're reading and when to buy stuff and how to interpret stuff online. And, yeah. and I think that's something that is like, – we're, we're in the breaking point of – Especially with social, everything social, media, um, yeah. social media and uh, we had a case in the UK, um, social media bullying um, and a, a young girl well, mm-hmm. took her own life. Um, yeah. uh, Allegedly, because of online mm. bullying, I mean, the, the we've report, had cases yeah. like that in Sweden. As exactly, well, yeah. where the well, court case in Gothenburg. Yeah, yeah. it's um, yeah, it's a complex world, and mm. uh, reading, reading, judging, yeah, re- 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 making an, an assessment mm. of what you're dealing with online, mm. whether it's a purchase or mm. whether it's social, mm. is is a skill that um, right, yeah, needs to be. So it is developed. pretty scary. So it, basically, I think it comes back to what is the intention of the organization. Who owns the website? If their intention is to deceive you, then they're doing it wrong. If their intention is they really, really believe that they have something good, hmm. then you can perhaps start to question: Is it okay for them to use all these techniques to actually think that you need it more or faster or now, hmm. perhaps than you would otherwise? We we back to the we we chatted briefly about this before the show. Um, Deception and persuasion. Mm-hmm. Deception, by definition, is evil. Yeah, it is. Yeah. If you're deceiving mm-hmm. someone, you're hiding the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas persuading is actually just you know arguing your mm-hmm. argu- having an argument as such, having a discussion mm-hmm. or using techniques to kind of uh, make people understand the benefits and understand that this is a worthwhile thing rather yep. than trick them. Yeah. So I, I think, um, yeah, your your um, your persuasive design shouldn't be deceptive. Because in the long run, that's going to hurt you. Mm. 
But where is the, where do you draw the line of deceptive? Is when you change the wording of a button from click here to buy now, and you realize that you get more leads mm. or more buys with one text over the other. Is one more deceptive than the other? In that example, it's probably that's that's. I wouldn't probably class that as deception. No, see, it's really. But where's really the hard. airplane? Where's the, the airplane? Um, the ticket. Oh um, yeah, artificial inflation. Yes. Yes. Going to how many visits you've made or yes. searches you made? Mm. That's deception. Mm. Um, but there is stuff I work with every day. Like, I mean, even copywriting. If I I know mm. if I write something in a certain way or I use storytelling, then mm. more people are going to start listening, and I'll have a more of a chance of actually persuading them to, to do what I want them to do. Isn't that good communication? It is good communication, good or it's like people selling hair medicine in, in like in the old West. Oh, that's snake oil. That's different. That's, that's deception because it didn't work. Mm, true. But <laughs> a, a, am I sure that what I'm selling is going to work for the person I'm selling it to? Sure, sure. If you're open about the fact it doesn't work for everyone. Oh, you're right. It's marketing and it's, numbers. It's, it's like, this it's, is really it's, hard. It's aging, it's aging sun cream on your, you know, yeah. 9%, 90% of women oh. say they made their skin less wrinkly. Oh. I'm oh. feeling really philosophical now. <laughs> but he does, I think, um, if you should have, check out this article and also read some of the comments. I think they're, they're saying a bit of the stuff that we're saying as well. And he does have a diagram in there that we both actually uh, like. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are, of course, there are shades of gray. It's not black and white. And I think that's very apparent. Yeah. So, but, I mean, if you have another take on this, I would love to hear it because I think this is a really interesting thing to dive into. Deception or persuasion or mm-hmm. something in between. It's design ethics. Mm. Mm. Time to move on. It is. Let's move on to another UX Magazine article, actually, mm-hmm. uh, written by Jessica Weber and John Cheng. It's called Making the Most of Ethnographic Research. Yeah. So what's, what's um, start off with, what's ethnographic re- research, Pat? Ethnographic research is uh, akin to goob. What are my favorite Goob. Term? Goob. You know, it's, now you explain two things. I know. <laughs> but that's easier to explain. Okay. Goob means get out of the building. Yeah. And ethnographic research means go visit the gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Uh, it means just go out and observe. Yeah. And... Uh, Draw conclusions from what you're seeing, and of course, you don't just go it's out. Seeing and, what I mean, seeing yeah. people and, and, and communities, yeah. groups of people, and their interactions. Right, ethnographic yeah. research can be done in so many different ways for so many different purposes. I mean, you could be f- to find a new market area, but also to find out more about the type of target group that you're actually selling to already. Mm. Uh, I think many people have heard about going to skate parks and, and researching the kids, observing the kids, and understand their lingo and what they're talking about and and that using what they say and their habits and their needs and desires and pleasures that they're actually uh well i don't know communicating in the sense that they're talking to each other and you're you as an observer can draw conclusions from that and make better products for them Hmm. and that's the essence you're you're trying to make something new trying to make something better and you go out and observe people to learn more about them and find out how could I, I don't know, satisfy their needs in a different way. Mm. And in that sense, also get uh, ahead on my competition. Mm. Mm. I think um, one of the, well, in the article here, it says, uh, um, ethnographic research is all about discovery of the unknown, disproving Mm. assumptions about user behavior and uncovering unexpected insights. Mm. Now, I I reacted a little bit to to that line because that made, made it sound to me 
um, it made it sound bad that ethno- uh, ethnographical research might prove an assumption correct about user behaviour or, or might actually fail to uncover something new. Right. Uh, and that's not what it's all about mm-hmm. to me. It, it's, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's, not, it's not just about the discovery of unknown, mm-hmm. or disproving mm-hmm. um, assumptions or um, uncovering inspected stuff. Mm-hmm. You can confirm things with this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, Absolutely. For me, ethnographic research is about sitting down with people and in their natural environment. I mean, that's why I said go out and visit the gorillas. Mm-hmm. It's in their natural habitat and where they're doing stuff. And talk to them, observe them, uh, get to know them, and they won't feel so uh, self-aware about, like in a traditional usability study, they're very, people are very self-aware of they're being evaluated or something is being evaluated, and oh. I have to give the right answers and stuff like that. I think you've got the fruit. Right, now. and you need to get to know people mm. for them to actually feel confident enough to actually tell you what they really are doing or saying or acting like and what they're using and mm. and what I've I've actually done one of these studies uh, like in a bank I don't know how much I can say right now but it, it's a bank don't say mm. it's a bank yeah <laughs> so I was sitting in the branch office uh, with the other people and I was really we were making a, a new intranet design mm. and I sat down there w- with them for a full day I was actually watching them take care of customers People were walking in, and I had an, just a note on my table saying that I wasn't giving service that day. So everybody just thought that I was an employee. Uh, I mean, and, and they got really confident with me sitting there. And just after a client walked out, I could bring up my table or my chair to their table and have a chat about how that went. And maybe they told me something about, yeah, maybe I should have told them something about this other service we're offering. But I didn't know where to find it on the internet, so I didn't sell them that. Mm-hmm. And that gave me really great insights about how the internet is supposed to help people sell, but it wasn't. And the, the bank was losing a lot of business due to this. So that was giving me insights thanks to actually being out there for a day mm. in their habitat and not just calling them up on the phone and interviewing them. And I wouldn't have found that out at all. No, as you know, that, was, that, was, that sounds good because it was, it was a day. It was yeah. quite. It was quite a reasonable thing. It was insights. Mm. I mean, you, right. you, 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 it was nicely packaged. That. Right. Whereas, I mean, I've, I've got home. We, me, both mm. me and you, really like. We really believe in this kind of talk to the yeah. user out there. I mean, mm. we t- mentioned don't know how many times mm. during the couple of years of the show. Um, but this article got my got my back up a little. Got my you know mm. got me a bit irritated by the fact it was very very academic, right. and and made me react against. Mm. Uh, ethnographical yeah. research and it's like here it may be challenging to get organizational buy-in to um, to pursue yeah. um, ethnographic research because of its long time horizon for results its cost and the perception that it may not deliver actionable results mm. I mean <laughs> I mean it's, it's impossible they're making get... a case against well, ethnographic yeah, I mean, research no one's going to buy that no. I mean that's just yeah. saying it's kind of it's only mm. it's only kind of the only right way of mm. doing it is these full you know year long uh, yeah. massive studies academic studies mm. where we truly get inside the head of mm. the user and so mm. on I mean it's, you can get it a lot more actionable than that a lot quicker and a lot you more you can like you say you mm. can spend a day sat down there observing mm. and you can get an awful lot of um, of, of, of input mm. um, but sometimes you, you can that. sit in a cafe or a hotel lobby just observe people yeah. and make, draw conclusions from that I mean but mm. it's, it's no that that, that oh. yeah they're making it a lot more it academic than it has to oh, be um, they're putting up rules for how it has to be done uh, and I don't really agree with that. And they're making it seem a lot more complicated than it should be. And making it sound like it's only for large organizations right. um, um, who don't care about return investment. Um, 
oh, but unless you're a startup, um, mm. I reckon a lot of time you're going to be better off, um, you know, testing mm. or tweaking, um, iterating. Yeah. Uh, you know, as far as returning investment goes, than doing some of these lovely, deep, um, honest um, studies um, mm. that that potentially show that the company's mm. product is utterly useless. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. Because no one wants to buy that. No one wants to buy a, a survey that's <laughs> yeah. going to tell them that their entire yeah. product is mm. useless, I guess. I think when, when we were in <laughs> Portugal, no. I got the question, how do we get started getting buy-in from managers on why UX is important? Mm. And and my most common answer to that question is get out, talk to people, make a video, and show it to managers. And that's something that really dates back to our favorite session at UXLX mm. ever, I think. Uh, with the guerrilla research mission. Oh, that was one of our favorites, yeah. With Russ Russ Unger. And we actually did go out uh, and just interview people and get Mm. videos. I can link to the film. Yeah, and that that took half an hour. And that's one form of ethnographic Mm. research as well. Um, In a couple of shows ago when we talked about intranets, Mm. um, after Internet Vag, there we brought up the example of um, IKEA. Right. Um, yeah. redesigning their internet. They mm-hmm. went out and interviewed, they filmed um, employees at the other side, mm-hmm. the, uh, various different points in the world, asking them what they wanted from the, the future intranet. Mm-hmm. And they just got to speak for a minute, kind of talking about what, they're, what, they're, what they wanted. Right. Um, again, it's not, some of these things are not pure ethnographical mm-hmm. research, but I'm not, I don't think you need it a lot of the time. For me, there's no pure anything. No, no. <laughs> there are just different schools. Yeah, and I mean, if they're going to make the case that this could be expensive and maybe not give the results that you want, I mean, that's then that's you're doing it wrong. Mm. You need to get results fast, and the more results you get fast, the more buy-in you'll get to make the longer studies. Mm. So starting starting out quick and dirty will give you management buy-in to do the better studies. If mm. you've got goals or you you know what you're trying to achieve mm. with whatever digital project you're working mm. with and you can measure them mm. then whatever you're doing if it in, whatever you got them do whether mm. it's research or tweets or whatever if it in, brings you close to those goals mm. or shows a, a rise in conversions or whatever yeah. you're doing yeah. then you're doing it right yes maybe not as right as something else mm. but you're you're obviously right. doing something more right, right than you were doing mm. <laughs> <laughs> i think we're in, in complete agreement there yeah. <laughs> Mo- moving on, I think. This is one you found, I think. I love the title. Well, I actually found I found an, a response to this article first. Mm. And then I went back and read this one. Ah, which is interesting. <laughs> but um, but I thought we'll we'll mm. we'll use this one as mm. the as the talking point. Mm. So the title is Unicorn Schmunicorn Be a Pegasus. So we all clearly understand exactly what this is all about. Oh now. yeah. And it's uh, it's the blog of Wayne Greenwood, uh, MCUX, Dropping Soft Science is his tagline. Okay. Uh, uh, this is basically about, um, oh, should designers code? Right. Which um, oh, is, is a topic we've touched upon a few times before, I think. I think so. And Roundabout. Mostly because both you and I, James, I think like code <laughs> we do and, and although these days i wouldn't say we're as a coders we're not coders but we see the benefits of understanding code to achieve the goals that we want to achieve and if we don't understand the code there are some i don't know some aspects of ux design that or decisions that we're not able to make unless we actually get into the nitty-gritty of what's the best i mean ux for me is is balancing 
the technology, the business, and the users. Mm. And if you don't understand the technology, doesn't even our little our, our little intro say that? Yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> right, it does. <laughs> and if we don't understand the technology, then we won't be able to have the right tools to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. Mm. I think um, to, to back up a little bit to what the article is saying here. I mean, um, uh, when's saying that um, he doesn't basically saying that um, unicorns are this mashup between. Um, designers and coders, the mm. one that can do both. Yeah. So, so I suppose one body that encompasses mm. both skills. Um, and and he thinks um, this is a step back in time um, to like the the eighties and nineties where everyone was coders who were you know, basically producing, doing the full job, producing the software and designing it mm. as, as a as a as a consequence of the fact that we're coding it. Mm. Um, and 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 shifting um, and by, by Making these combined u- these unicorns, shifting your attention away from the user and back towards the technology, which he says get, got us into the mess we're in in the first place. Right. Um, but um, I don't agree with. Well, obviously we've already said that we don't really <laughs> agree with him. Cause, I mean, I, I don't think we're getting back into the same mess. Um, I think it's more that we were. Or we know how quickly and how how, how much the whole branch is has been evolving. I mean, it's it's so quick how we're going forward and we're learning things, and I. I I, I think we were, more, it was, we were ignorant in the 90s. Mm. Um, I don't think it was a... It, was, it wasn't that we deliberately got ourselves in that mess. Um, you know, we were... We, you know, people doing software... When I was programming in the 90s, um, user experience... Improving the user experience was about fixing bugs. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. my boss was the one who decided yeah. what products we were making. Yeah. And you know, he talked to other mm. people. He, he did mm. some research by talking to his customers and things to find out what they wanted. Mm. But from me, my mm. viewpoint as a programmer who effectively designed mm. as well, um, you right. know, if, if I improved it for mm. the user, if I made it faster or if I, um, mm. or if I, I made it um, less buggy. Mm. <laughs> um, you had a requirement specification. And if it didn't yeah. meet those requirements, it wasn't yeah. useful. So, I don't think it was. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we were mm. kind of deliberately getting ourselves into a mess. Mm. That was mm. what we, we, you know, we did back then. We've moved on. But also, I mean, um, I was working with usability quite early on, but even then, usability, at least when you were working in the online world, mm. it was about where to place a button, yeah. something like that. Yeah. that was, you get, oh, well, yeah, yeah. Getting closer to what we today term uh, the terminology well, I mean, for user experience. Don't get me wrong. It's not the same thing. I mean, um, HCI, I mean, human community interaction. Yeah. I mean, that, you could study that. Right. Um, it was courses mm-hmm. at university, but it wasn't really applied in the same right. I mean, or people doing the mm. programming were maybe too... Mm too young back then to have gone through those courses. Yeah. And people weren't asking for it. No, they were interested. No. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't mm. have done hell's chance mm. of being able to do something mm-hmm. like that if I'd, if even I'd come out of university and gone into mm. it, there wasn't the understanding there. So yeah. we moved on, we're mature. And, mm. and I think um, as much as you, as much as you can, um, you can focus as much as you like on the user when you should, mm. you, you should, mm. um, but you can't get away from the technology. Right. What in the branch we're dealing in, mm. We've 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 always going to come. At the end of the day, you're always going to come back to technology. You can't you can't not. It's it's fundamental. It's what it's based on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so by uh, by by mm. not by ignoring the code side mm. of things, by ignoring how it's implemented mm. as a designer, mm. you're you're creating a silo for yourself, and you're you're distancing distancing yourself from the end result. Right. And there are situations where maybe that is fine. Like, well, innovation or conceptualization. Yeah, I, think, I, mean, or, there are, I mean, there are times when you should actually s- stop thinking about the limitations and yeah. go wild, go crazy, yeah. and think about what do we really want to accomplish? What would, would be the dream scenario? Yeah. But then after that, 
you always have to back up and say, okay, so what can we do now? There's a thud. We have to yeah. come back down to earth because we have to right. produce something. Right. Mm. And you have to accomplish something. <laughs> yeah. And and and, and then you, you can't ignore the technology because mm. we're going to end up with the, the whole white elephant mm. projects. You're going to mm. end up with situations where you get to the point of implementation mm. and someone goes, you've got to be kidding. You can't do that. Mm. Uh, for me, it's all about like, how, how can you, it's a bit like if, if you were a car designer, mm. but refuse to accept that wheels are round. <laughs> so you end up designing a, a, a car with square wheels. Yeah. I mean, come on, you're going to get thrown back straight. When you come mm. to the guys who are going to actually manufacture it, mm. they're, they're going to say, can't you, don't you know anything mm. about designing mm. cars? Right. I mean, and I don't think mm. that falls into the innovation. You can't, I don't think we're killing innovation by saying mm. that you've got to design cars with round wheels. Because if you no, are designing yeah, a car, yeah. I think today, I'm, I'm going to expect that you understand a, a, a certain <laughs> amount about cars so that it's going to move when I, when I try and drive it. And the same mm. goes with, with digital design or web design yeah. things. I'm going, to, I'm going to expect that you, a designer, are going to, are going to understand mm. a certain yeah. amount. Um, and we, we see this we see it constantly where designers don't understand enough mm-hmm. and you end up with, with things that oh, fail yeah. usability-wise, fail SEO-wise, yeah. fail conversion-wise. Bloated and, and huge and, mm. and just haven't thought about the, the complete experience. Yeah. Just think about the visual experience. Mm. Um, but, I, but I don't think we're saying that all designers need to code. No. What we're saying is that you need to be aware of it and have an understanding for it and have the dialogue mm-hmm. with the people who do understand the technology because that's yes. what I do. You need to bring every, the whole team has to be there early on. It's not mm. a solo uh, approach by the UX, UX designers. You bring in everybody from the start. This is what we're trying to accomplish. Mm. What are our options? And we start designing it and the technology people are there or, or you know enough about it yourself. And you realize that, okay, we can do it this way or that way. That way, the technology is going to cost 200000 mm. And that way, it's going to cost 20000 mm. What is, is it worth it for the user experience to go the more expensive way? And that's the way you balance it, going mm. through all those steps with every decision you're making. Mm. Yeah. It's um, – I um, – could you, could you spin around as well and say, do, do coders need to design? They need to have an understanding. I mean, I, I think we're getting there. Yeah. I think we're getting there. I, I think, guess yeah. that's my experience now is that they really have a respect for what I'm doing and I have a respect for what they're doing. Mm. And uh, I really, really I've, I've been in situations where the, the coders have had better design suggestions than I have. Mm. Uh, and you need to swallow your pride sometimes and realize, oh my God, if we do it that way, you're right. I mean, mm. most people have experience designing stuff now. We've mm. done, been doing these web online services for, for, for a few years yeah. and people have seen different uh, solutions and people surf online and they see mm. they take uh, impressions from other sites so it's not like you have the one and only solution because you're the UX designer mm. a lot of the different competencies on the organization have lots of ideas mm. Mm. so when he's saying also that a company that doesn't have a full time UX designer doesn't understand the value of UX. That's mm. not true either, because mm. you can have that across the whole board, and that's what you really want. Mm. And also the tagline of our show actually break down the silos. Yeah. UX is part of every role in the organization. Yeah. It's not just one person. Yeah, and you, if you ignore one aspect mm. of it, you're more likely to fail. Mm. I think now I'm just I'm thinking again about um, future friendly. Right. Um, Brad Frost, mm. um, a coder mm. by background, mm. uh, but also a bit of a UX and designer these yeah. days in what he does. And thinking about how we work with future-friendly or re- responsive mm. and, and the plethora of, of different screen sizes mm. we've got. 
as you as a designer who has mm. no feeling and understanding for, for code or technology, you maybe will design a desktop website yeah. because that's seemingly perfect in your mm. world without any consideration of the fact that there's all these different technologies and screen sizes. And right, yeah. How can you, how could you possibly mm. be a great designer mm. in that kind of multi, multi-screen mm. world mm. without an understanding of the, of the technology, the technology yeah. uh, on a, a level yeah. which does get very close mm. to, to coding, as in mm. you, you would understand mm. how it's built inside. So, so yeah, again, we're, we're not saying that you need to be a coder. Mm. But there has to be a, a mm. proximity there, a closeness mm. to your, your mm. end medium. Mm. But I do feel we're may, maybe we're being a bit hard on Wayne here as well, because what he has, I think he has a think? fair point <laughs> about, I mean, there are, I mean you, you can go both ways. As a UX designer, if, if you want to develop, I mean, you could either go into coding or, I mean, or learn more about coding. I'm not saying you have to necessarily go into being a coder, but you can also go the other way and approach management and see if you can actually be a more visionary employee, uh, have a more visionary status where you actually take control of the whole situation, in which case you could actually be the person who also who understands that technology is important, but you have it on a higher management level. Mm. And he's making really the case for that a UX person could perhaps be a person who is of more value to the board than someone who works within the IT organization, perhaps. You're right. I mean, you're, he, does, he does make... That's his um, kind of... Um, Oh, closing line there is don't aspire to be a unicorn. Um, unfurl your wings mm. um, and, and have the overhead view of the business instead mm. and, um, and be a Pegasus. Mm. Um, but, you know, we, they can't all, all UXs can't be Pegasus. No, but some they, can. Some a few can. Must, a few need to be, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We mm. need, you need to get mm. UX people higher up the, the, mm. the chain and so mm. on. But, um, but he's saying don't be a coder, be a business analyst mm. is basically what he's saying. Um, well, you know, that isn't going to, that isn't going to directly produce us better digital stuff. It's part of the long term there, but you can't. I don't think it's a fork where I don't think we should just shift everyone that way. No, I, no, absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as a UX designer, if you're not getting people, or you don't, you feel that nobody's understanding you, <laughs> yeah. then you have a different ways to go, and this is one of the ways to go. You could perhaps make a case for being a more, playing a more important part or role in the organization. Yeah. But that, I mean, that takes some ball, balls, actually. <laughs> well, I think it takes the right. Obviously, it takes the right organization as well. Yeah, it does mm. very much so. And yeah. I think the only way—I actually have to come back. Then, the only way to get people to listen to you is to show results. Yeah. And if you're not showing results, you're not going to take this route anyway. Yeah. Or think, you um, quit your job and do something else. Yeah. I mean, Wayne here as well says, if your company doesn't um, feel that UX and design is important enough to have a full-time position, mm. um, then he basically says, don't work for them. Um, and, uh, and I, <laughs> I want to change that and say, if, if the company doesn't feel that it's important enough to have a UX person, then you're doing it wrong. Right. Mm. Isn't that true? I mean, if if, they, if you can't show that you're valuable, then you're doing it wrong. Uh, I think I, I I agree with you to an extent, but to me, that's the whole kind of. I, th- I think I think Wayne needs to work for a smaller company for a while. Because <laughs> um, I mean, I, I I know I work with lots of companies where they yeah. don't even have a full time web person, mm. um, let alone mm. a full time UX person. It's not that they don't understand or, or appreciate maybe UX. Maybe they just don't have the the budget for that, or maybe they don't, they're not mature enough as an organization True. for quite take on that role. It's, mm. it's, not, it's not a definition that says, if you don't have mm. a UXer, yeah. then clearly you don't understand UX. We're, we're not there yet. Mm. We're, you know, we're not all multinationals mm. with teams of people working on stuff. No, true. It's a, it's a sliding scale. And it's getting so. back to the really 
tough conflict of explaining how UX brings monetary value to the mm-hmm. organization, mm-hmm. which often is really hard. Yeah. Uh, and for small organizations, mm-hmm. it's it's difficult. It's, it's nigh impossible when you get into the the, the really small organizations mm-hmm. to to sell in multiple mm-hmm. roles. Mm-hmm. You have to be the multiple role. You have to be the designer who can code mm-hmm. because they're not going to they're not going to spend money on on two people. They're going to come to me or you mm. or someone else and say, "Well, you know, can you do that WordPress mm. site?" So then it's it's your responsibility to 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 oh, to code mm. a little bit mm. um, and to to think about the UX side of mm. things and to to, to analyze their mm. business needs and mm. make sure you pack it all together. Yeah. And sometimes, if you understand the technology, it's actually easier to make a case for how you can save money. <laughs> so that actually makes it easier for you to oh, sell and improve, UX. yeah, improve results yeah. straight off. Yeah. So yeah. So next time round, you'll get maybe more buy-in mm-hmm. for the the next step up right. of UX because you've shown that just that little change mm-hmm. can make that much. So maybe another change can make that much more. Yep. Persuasive. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think James, we have to get you off to a meeting. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yes. I forgot to look at the time. Yeah. Oh, blimey. No, I really do have to You're run to a rush. meeting now. I've okay. got to really rush now. Yeah. Um, should I just throw the mic down and run? <laughs> yes. You've got the keys. James, remember to keep moving. Uh, I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> You've been listening to UX Podcast with James Royal Lawson and Pear Axeboom. Visit UXPodcast.com for more episodes and to subscribe to the show. UX Podcast, moving the conversation beyond UX. UX.